Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You- hey everyone. It's me, TV. Just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Recording by Marty on the central coast of California. Astounding Story 6, June 1930, The Moon Master, Part 4. There was water in Jerry's face as he fell. A torrent engulfed him as he struck into it, pouring in from a lower passageway to plunge straight down the shaft. The roaring crash of water tore madly at his body. His arm was shot through with stabbing pain as Winslow's falling body was torn from his grasp. He was conscious only of his bursting lungs when he came to the surface from the depths into which he plunged. With one arm he swam weakly, the other trailing at his side, while he gulped greedily at the air. A voice came hoarsely from a distance. Foster, it called. Jerry, where are you, Jerry? Ah, the good air in his lungs. He could swim more strongly now. He managed to gasp an answer. Here, Winslow. Over here. There was a splashing in response to his voice. He heard it over the noise of the waters he had been swept away from the cataract. A hand was upon him in the dark. Hurt? asked the welcome voice. Can you swim, Jerry? A little. One arm's working. The hands fumbled over him quickly, and his good arm was drawn over the other's back. Hang on, Winslow told him. I can swim. I'm half fish. Jerry clung to the folds of the coat. He was light in the water, he felt, riding high, and the man beside him was swimming with strong strokes. He released his hold on the other as he felt strength ebbing back into his body. I can paddle, he said. But stick around. Where are we going? In a circle, probably, was the reply. Though I'm trying to hold a straight course. How big is this lake, I wonder? They swam slowly, saving their strength. But it was a time that seemed like endless hours before the answer to Winslow's question was found. Jerry was fighting weakly, exhausted, and the hand supporting him was failing when they felt sharp rocks against their dragging feet. The hand that held him still clung tightly to his shoulder as they struggled upward and fell together where great rocks gave safety in the darkness. In his arm the sharp pain had dwindled to numbness. Jerry Foster asked only for sleep. There was light about him when he awoke. In his stupor, he had found again the surroundings he knew so well. The clash and clatter of a distant city. The roaring traffic. Signals and glowing lights. He came slowly back to unwelcome reality. The light was there, but it shone in luminous lines along the wall to illuminate the hateful familiarity of the honeycombed rock that composed the moon. It showed, too, a familiar figure breathing heavily where it lay on the far side of the small room. Winslow's face was pale in the dull light, and his eyes were closed. 
He was on a thick pallet of soft fibers, and across his body a cloth was spread, shot through with gold and strange designs. Jerry Foster threw aside a robe of the same material that covered him. He stifled an involuntary word as a twinge of pain shot through his arm, then crossed noiselessly to shake softly at the shoulder of the sleeping man. Winslow, too, came slowly from his sleep of complete exhaustion, but his eyes were clear when they opened. Where are... he began a question, but Jerry's hand was pressed quickly against his lips. They stared slowly about. The room that held them was in a natural rock, but whether hewn out by hands or a natural formation they could not tell. The rock was rotten with perforations through which air flowed in a cool stream. Jerry came softly to his feet to feel cautiously of the glowing luminous mounds along the wall. They were spread upon a ledge. The light was cold to his touch. The material like fine soil in his hands. Fluorescent, whispered Winslow. Calcium sulfide, possibly. I saw them spreading it above ground in the sun. It absorbs light and gives it off slowly. Jerry nodded. The source of the endless glowing lines had been puzzling to him. Their whispers ceased at a sound beyond a doorway. In the opening, a figure appeared, tall and erect, the figure of a girl. Her face was white like the others of these whose lives were lived below the surface. But there was a kindly softness in the eyes, a refinement, an intelligence of no low order that contrasted with the cold eyes of the warriors and the priests. Not beautiful, perhaps, by earth standards, yet it required no straining of chivalry on Jerry's part to find her human and lovely. In silence the men stood staring. Then Foster, with unconscious gentleness, made a revealing gesture. This woman, this girl, had saved them. He knew it without words, and he was wordless to reply. He dropped swiftly to his knees and pressed a bit of golden robe against his lips. A flush of scarlet swept across the white face and receded. The hand dropped from its startled poise and rested, gently, questioningly, on the brown head bent before her. She murmured unintelligible words in a guarded voice as Jerry arose. Barana, she said, and touched her breast lightly. Barana. Her head was erect, the whole attitude imperious, commanding. She questioned them with swift, liquid words. The men shook their heads in utter incomprehension. Again she spoke, and again they shook their heads. Jerry felt foolish and dumb. He took his turn at questioning, and this time with a trace of a smile. It was the girl's turn to shake her head. She had mastered one sign, at least. Pointing toward the great hall they knew was somewhere above, she reenacted the scene there. She evidently knew what had transpired, and now Jerry nodded in confirmation. That she approved of the part they had played was evident. Now she questioned whence they had come. She pointed down, and her fluttering hands and graceful posture spoke eloquently. She showed them more than a trace of fear, too, as she marked them coming from the depths. Jerry shook his head in vehement denial. He pointed above, spread his hands wide, tried as best he could to indicate the vast distance beyond. She stared, wide-eyed, then in her turn knelt as if before a god. She thinks we have come down from the sun, Winslow surmised. Well, let it go at that. But Jerry Foster was embarrassed in the strange role of a god. He raised the humbled, kneeling young woman to her feet. He pointed to her clad figure and repeated the name she had given. Marana, he said. Marana. 
Then, placing his hand on his companion, he repeated, Winslow, Winslow, and pointing to himself, he completed the introduction with Boster, Jerry, Jerry Boster. The pale lips formed themselves slowly to the strange and unaccustomed sounds. Jerry, Jerry, he repeated and smiled in comprehension. Jerry. This was the first of many lessons, and it was amazing to both men how rapidly they learned to get their thoughts across. In turn, they learned to read the messages that the slim hands and graceful, undulating body conveyed. Even words were linked one by one with their indicated objects and meanings. One syllable the girl used only in a hushed and awe-stricken tone. It was, Ong, that she whispered, while her eyes filled with terror and dread. And they knew this, for the name of the horror that waited in the black center of that unholy place where the pathway of light ascended. It was later that they learned to read hatred as well as sheer terror in the emotions of that world, Ong aroused. The first lesson ended in a soft exclamation from the girl. She withdrew to return in a moment with a beaker of hammered gold filled with cold water. In her hands, too, were strange fruits and branches of fungus. She ate bits of them to show they were food, and Jerry, as he watched her, was aware that he was famished. But the two men ate sparingly at first of the strange food. It was tasteless, they found, except for an elusive flavor, but the reception of the food in their gnawing stomachs was satisfactory. Their strength was returning, and with it came hope of release. The moon people, evidently, were not altogether villainous. Thank you, said Jerry in a normal tone. That was... White fingers trembled against his lips to enforce silence. The girl listened intently, then stole softly out into the corridor from which she had come. She motioned the men to follow, and pointed there in the dim light to a far room. There were others, they saw, a group of young women, lying at ease on their pallets, or moving about slowly. The need for quiet was apparent, more so when the figure of a man appeared as they watched. Quickly the girl Marana stepped before them and motioned them back to their room. She followed and glanced quickly about. In the farther wall was an opening, close to the floor, and low, but they managed to work their way through at her silent command. A passage, much like the others, lay beyond. It widened and grew higher, until they could stand erect. Back in the circle of light they saw, for a moment, the man bowing low in respect before Marana. He carried a basket of light that shone brightly in the room. "'Replenishing the supply of sulphide,' whispered Winslow. A current of air came cool and refreshing from a branching tunnel in the rock. There was no lack of ventilation, as they well knew, throughout all the torturous passages, but this came with a scent of outdoors that set both men a-tingle with hope. Jerry forgot even the dull ache in his arm as he breathed deep of this messenger from the outside. But exploration must wait. They needed to rest, to learn, and to plan. They returned when Marana called softly from the room. Time had lost all its meaning. They could only guess at the hours that had passed since the hour they left their ship, could only make unanswered surmises as to where was the sun or how much was left of the long lunar day. They must escape. They would escape. But their one stroke for freedom 
must not be made when darkness and paralyzing cold should force them back into the hands of the enemy tribes. Marana was with them much of the time, and always they struggled and strove with desperate concentration to grasp at the meanings of the thoughts she tried to convey. And they learned much of the passage they believed they had found out to the surface. She knew little. But she showed them, without doubt in her face, that there was almost hopeless struggle along the path to the freedom above. Sadly she touched Jerry's injured arm, and she shook her head in dejection. The arm had had a bad wrench, Jerry found. No fracture, but the muscles and ligaments had been painfully torn. But Jerry set his teeth firm at the thought of a possible escape. Once, peering along the dark passage that led to the room where the others had been seen, the men noticed the deep bows that unfailingly marked the entrance of Marana. They questioned her and learned that here was royalty among the people of the moon. This, as they considered the proud poise of her head and her whole attitude of unassuming superiority, was not entirely surprising. But they marveled the more at the truth that she finally made plain to them. Marana she told them as plainly as if she were speaking in their own tongue marana was chosen for death and her white face was pitiful and her eyes full of horror as she enacted for them the slow march she must take up the long golden slope into the horror that waited a sacrifice to that god jerry spoke with dismay no no but the face of the princess marana of the moon people was unutterably sad with unspoken thoughts as she touched her breast with one slender finger then indicated the outer room and showed there where two were there besides herself who were to go help us get out jerry begged and with fierce eagerness he showed them going through the passage to the outside we will come back and we will find some way to end all this damnable thing she gave them to understand the time that was left the sun, she showed, was long past the meridian and was on its return. The day was now reaching a close, and then as the sun set, the great sacrifice would be made, had always been made, to ensure the return of their god. Their watches were useless, for the water had entered their cases. The two men waited what they judged was the length of a day, while Jerry tried to believe that his arm was improving. Then, putting a small supply of food in their pockets, they were ready for the attempt. Jerry saw that his gun and knife were ready at his belt, and patted a pocket where his matches were safe in their watertight container. The prospect of escape almost unnerved him. To breathe that clear air, to stand in the radiant light of the sun. He could understand now how these people made a god of the sun. He turned to Marana. Goodbye, he said, but not for long. We'll be back, and we'll save you, Marana. We'll save you. Winslow will figure some way to do it. We'll be back. The girl was silent. She touched Jerry's arm and shook her head slowly, doubtfully. He reached for the hand. It trembled, he felt, in his. The impulse to take the slim form within his arms, to hold her close, was strong upon him. Would he ever see her again? Would he? Won't you say goodbye, Marana? he asked. But she smiled instead, a friendly smile and encouraging. Then dropped in silence to her knees to press upon, with both her trembling hands, his hand upon her forehead. And, still in silence, 
She rose to vanish from the room. The men entered the narrow opening to start forward into the dark. But Jerry Foster was puzzled. Puzzled and more than a trifle hurt. Marana could at least have said goodbye. She knew the word, for he had taught it to her, and she let him, them, go. Well, he thought, how can I know how a princess feels? A princess of the moon. And why should I care? But why should she? He refused to complete the thought. He hurried instead as best he could to follow Winslow, fumbling ahead of him in the dark. Jerry had used plenty of muttered invective with the massage he had given his arm, but he cursed his handicap wholeheartedly at the end of some several hours. They were standing, he and Winslow, in a dark tunnel. They had climbed and clawed their way through the absolute dark over broken fragments, through narrow apertures, down and up and up again through a torturous winding course. And now they had reached the end. They had found the source of the fresh air, and had come within reaching distance, it seemed, of sunlight and all that their freedom might mean. And they had come, too, to a precipitous rock wall. They stared long and hopelessly at the shaft that reached, vertical and sheer, high, high over their heads. And a curse like that of Tantalus was theirs, for far at the top, slanting in through some off-shooting passage, there was sunlight. It was unmistakable in its clear glare, beautiful, glorious, and unattainable. There were roughnesses in the wall, footholds, handholds here and there. It might be. It might be. Jerry tried to believe, but the ache in his arm made the thought hopeless and incomplete. He turned to his companion. I believe you can do it, he said steadily. Winslow's dark eyes were gleaming in the dimness that surrounded. Possibly, he replied, and eyed the ascent with an appraising stare. Even probably. But you know damn well, Foster, that I'm not going to try. Don't be an ass. Jerry's tone was harsh, but the tall man must have known what emotions lay underneath. We'll play it out together, he said. Jerry was silent as he reached in the darkness for Winslow's hand. Of course I knew you were that sort, he said. He waited a moment, then added, But you're going, old man. You're going. Don't you see it's our only hope? Winslow shook his head emphatically. Jerry could see him in the dim reflection from the radiance above. Nothing doing the calm voice assured him. Don't bother to think up more reasons why I should desert. Listen. Jerry gripped roughly at the other's shoulders. Listen to reason. If you go, and I go back there, what will happen? With Marana gone, we are helpless. And we will be helpless to save her. The long night is ahead. How can we live? Where can we live? We will be wiped out as sure as we are alive this minute. If you go, and you make it to the ship, there's a chance. Alone, I may manage to stick it out. He knew he was lying, knew that the other knew it too, but he went on determinedly. You can wait for me up above. My arm will be well. Winslow stopped him with a gesture. There's a chance, the older man was muttering. There's a chance. He swung quickly toward Foster to grab hard at that good right hand. I'm going, he stated. I'm on my way. I won't say goodbye. What's the use? I'll be back soon. He released his hold on Jerry to leap high in the air for a ledge of projecting rock. He caught it and hung. His foot found a toehold, and he drew himself up to where another rough outcrop gave grip for his hand. Jerry Foster stood frozen 
to throbbing stillness. Words were strangling in his throat, an impulse almost irresistible to call, if there were only a rope. He was still and silent when the tiny figure of his companion and friend was lost in the heights, where it vanished into that tunnel from which the light came. He turned blindly to stumble back into the dark. Marana was waiting when he regained the safety of her room. Safety. The thought was bitter when linked with the certain fate that lay ahead. Silently, she stroked the bent head of the man who dropped dejectedly upon the hard stone floor. Her fingers were gentle, comforting, despite the utter hopelessness and discouragement that lay heavily upon him. They sat thus, nor counted the flying minutes, while the fog of despair in the mind of the beaten man was clearing. He raised his head finally to meet the look in the dark eyes, and he managed to smile, as one can who has thought his way through to the bitter end and has faced it. He patted the hand that stroked his bowed head. It's all right, he said gently. What is to be will be, and we can't change it. And it's all right somehow. His sleeping during their long stay had been a cause for amusement to Marana, whose habits were tuned to the long days and nights on the moon. And he was sleepy now, sleepy and tired. She spread the robe over him as he rested on the soft fiber bed. He awoke from a deep sleep with a light heart, for Jerry Foster, as he faced his own certain death, had seen certain things. It was the end. That was one fact he couldn't evade. But he grinned cheerfully, all by himself in that strange cheerless room, as he thought of what else he had visioned. And it will be just one hell of a fight, he said softly aloud. There will be some of those priests that will know they have been in a war. He examined again the knife and the automatic, and counted the cartridges left in the magazine. There were more he had found in a pocket of his coat, enough to replace those he had fired. He slipped the pistol into its holster at the sound of soft footsteps approaching. It was Marana who entered, a strange and barbaric Marana. She was clad in a garment of spun gold that enveloped her tall figure. It trailed in rippling beauty on the floor, draped in resplendence her slim body, to end in soft folds about a headdress that left Jerry breathless. Her face was entirely concealed. The gold helmet covered her head. It was tall, made entirely of hammered gold, in which spirals of jewels reflected their colors of glittering light. She was quite unrecognizable in the weird magnificence. Only her voice identified the figure. She murmured chokingly some soft words, then raised her head with its barbaric helmet proudly high as she concluded. There were words become familiar now to Jerry. Together with the spectacle she presented, her meaning was more than plain. The time has come, she was telling him. The sun, the hour of sacrifice. Jerry leaped to his feet. His plans for battle were being revised. An idea, a plan half-formed, was beating in his brain. A sound was beating upon him, too. There were drums that throbbed in steady unison, that echoed hollowly along resounding walls, that approached in loudly increasing cadence. The plan was complete. No, said Jerry Foster with a wild laugh. He reached to remove the golden helmet. He placed it upon his own head, under the startled gaze of the wondering girl. He reached out for the robe. 
You shall not go, he told her. I will go in your place. And when I reached that room, his eyes were savage behind the slits in the golden headdress. No, no, the girl protested. Her face showed plainly the complete hopelessness of what Jerry proposed. To pit himself against that antagonist, she knew how futile was the brave gesture. Jerry was undaunted. I have got to die anyway, he tried to explain. And if I can get in one good crack at whatever there is, well, I may be of help. His hand was taking off the cloak. Marana's eyes were steady upon him. She ceased to resist. She whipped one of the covers from the couch about her and helped him with the golden rope. The throbbing of drums was hammering at Jerry's temples. They were close at hand. Marana, without a word, rushed frantically back toward the room where the others waited. And again Jerry Foster felt that odd tightening of disappointment about his heart. But what was the difference, he told himself, in a hundred years or a hundred minutes? He set his lips tight and walked slowly out and down the passage. The room he entered was deathly quiet. There were figures standing about, figures robed in their gold-threaded drapes that stared strangely, wonderingly at him, and drew themselves into a huddled group against the wall. And two there were, who stood apart, the other victims. Their sacrificial garments wrapped them round where they waited for the third who was to accompany them. Jerry joined them as a guard came in from the outer hall. End of Section 18 The Moon Master Part 4 Read by Marty on the Central Coast of California To the Cthulhu Mythos, you can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show.